Perhaps the greatest mystery of all time is what gives rise to the phenomena of consciousness. In 1890, psychologist William James explained that consciousness was the most mysterious thing in the world. How could it be physical? How could a few pounds of gray gelatin give rise to our thoughts and to ourselves? Enter Douglas Hofstadter. In 1972, Douglas Hofstadter was a physics, was a particle physicist student, uh, and he had taken a break from his studies to spend some time camping and reflecting upon his questions about life. One of his great questions was about how the brain works uh, with everything, with language and our sense of ourself and, and our, our consciousness. Um, one of the things that fascinated him in particular was language, as I said earlier. He had a little sister who had a mental condition where she was not able to comprehend language. He spent a lot of time thinking about it, about how, how it works, how the brain processes it, how it's different for humans and other animals, and, th and things like that. So um, just to add to, to the sister not being able to comprehend language, uh, one of the things that's fascinating, and I've played with this software that IBM made for uh, Stephen Hawking, mm -hmm. because as he got more and more... Um, how should I say, uh, capable of, of speaking and, and using his body to, to project language, they uh, created a, a system which is free online, go look it up, Stephen Hawking software, that would take the slightest hints from his eyes and would populate guesses on what his sentences would say. So it would be very efficiently predict his language and, and so that he could actually speak near real time. And, and, and the other thing is that's, that's fascinating to me, uh, playing off Douglas, Hofstadter, uh, Douglas Hofstadter's sister, is the problem that Helen Keller faced. She could not see, she could not hear, yet she mastered multiple languages, wrote books, and somehow built an understanding of her existence in our world. Yeah, what, what I find fascinating about all this is when we talk about what it means to be human specifically, well, if Helen Keller did not have the sense of sight, she didn't have the sense of sound, yet she communicated. I don't know of anybody who would ever, you know, doubt the fact that she fully was human. So what does it mean to be human? Um, and so, so the clue that she had was... The clue that I got from her, and when I think about artificial intelligence, is her breakthrough moment was when the teacher put her, put her hand in water and put the other hand on the Braille symbol of water, mm -hmm. and suddenly a, a, a topological link, if you will, was formed. Mm -hmm. This sensation, this, this, this you know, temperature, this viscosity, and these symbols mm -hmm. were mapped. Yes. And then she began to map the world. And I can almost see in three dimensions a, a form of Wikipedia where she is linking the next braille symbol to maybe a cat or to a book or to a letter and and, and i i think that there's a huge clue we can learn on how to build artificial intelligence yeah that way. oh for sure and i know that we certainly are not the first ones to to uh to ponder these questions uh so part of it is symbolism part of it is the ability to communicate uh what else is it and why is it so hard to wrap our minds around this and i am fully aware of the uh, self-reference there and saying wrap our minds around the phenomena of consciousness there's a lot of writers and philosophers in fact who think that perhaps it is uh, impossible for a conscious being as complex as we are to understand to understand the um the phenomena itself you'd have to be uh, a super intelligent being to understand consciousness at, at our level. It's sort of like that spot in, on, on your back that you can't really scratch. You know, it's just, it's kind of impossible. Now, this is a very, very exciting episode. Uh, we get to talk about um, a, a groundbreaking book that attempted to discuss or, or 
talk about consciousness as uh, a mathematical phenomenon. Uh, in the 20th century, we, we uh, know that um, uh, mathematician Kurt Gödel wrote the incompleteness theorem in which he talks about mathematics uh, not only describing numbers but describing but describing the system of math itself so mathematics can have a self referential um, axioms. Uh, not only with that, uh, uh, he also showed that uh, mathematics would, would always be complete, or sorry, <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> he showed that mathematics is, uh, an in, is, is forever incomplete. That is, any system that is complex enough to refer to itself will, will uh, be necessarily incomplete, where and, you can't and, prove it. And what's amazing about that is it's not some sophisticated system. It's just the system of the integers and their arithmetic. When you express them logically, they will have self-referential statements that, and, and, and I've said this in a previous episode, is like your computer getting stuck in a loop. Theorems, he showed that theorems can get stuck in potentially infinite loops. If it's potentially infinite, then it's an incomplete thing. You don't know if you have to wait forever or, or the next two minutes for your stuck computer to hopefully not destroy your work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was reading um, an article uh, from, oh gosh, 2013. I, you know, I better, don't quote me on that. Uh, from The Atlantic, which was a discussion on the research done by D Douglas Hofstadter. And what I found out was... Um, you know, as a grad student, uh, he didn't. Uh, he he was not well known. Uh, his his claim to fame was his book called Godel Escher Bach, uh, and and basically that book started from him just pondering about the phenomena of of consciousness and the functionality of the brain, and he began to write his ideas down to a friend, and then his letter became, uh, gosh, what thirty pages of, of ideas, and rather than send it, he just sort of let it sit and. Um, uh, he, he just, you know, sat on it for a very long time, and it turned into the book that is Godel Escher Bach that is over 700 pages, huge, huge book. Now, so I, th I think what was in the article that you were reading, I think yes. it said the big idea was he went camping, took a break, like you said, and he suddenly realized or, or had the intuition that if I'm going to understand in uh, consciousness, mm -hmm. I have to be able to understand recursion. That recursion in the sense of Gödel, that's why the yes. book Gödel Escherbach, is the key thing to consciousness. That was his theory. That's his, been his book and later books. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so real quick, before we move on to our next section, we should talk about his title that he chose, Gödel Escherbach, and I believe the subtitle is a... Eternal Golden Braid. An Eternal Golden Braid. It's beautiful. Escher, of course, was an artist. What's Escher's full name? I'll have to look that up, actually. I never remember Escher other than Escher. <laughs> yes. Uh, he, you know, he's Escher. He's like, he, you know. There you go. Yeah. Elvis, Escher. Exactly, exactly. So Escher was the artist who also wrote, or who, who was famous for, among other things, a, a drawing of a hand drawing itself. So again, that's a self-referential. It's sort of like a self-referential thing. You know, it's, a, it's something creating itself, which is a, a strange phenomena when we talk about, you know, uh, um, things coming into being. And then, of course, um, Bach, uh, he's famous for his fugues, and I think you do a better job at explaining. Um, so the simplest fugue that I know about is probably a lot of people know about is row, row, row your boat. And you can shift it in time, and it still sounds pretty good. And you can shift it again in time, and it still sounds pretty good. Um, Bach went a little off the deep end using a group theory. He wasn't realizing it. He also would invert it in time and then paste it onto it. And uh, I think it's called the Crab Cannon. Look it up on YouTube. They show that you can actually take the piece of music and form a, a Mobius strip and play it like this, reverse and forward time. Actually, it's going like that, or on the Mobius strip. Oh, that's a cool And it video. sounds beautiful. So please look up the, the, the Bach Cannon 
uh, the Crab Cannon uh, on YouTube. Well, before we continue, I want to talk a little bit about what Hofstadter himself says about his book. Of course, we had talked about um, how his book is called Godel, Escher, Bach. Uh, what Hofstadter says, and I'm actually quoting from the Wikipedia page here, is he says uh, that uh, his book is not about mathematics, art, and music, but rather it's about how cognition emerges from hidden neurological mechanisms uh, that are very similar to the patterns we see in uh, Bach's fugues and Escher's art and Godel's incompleteness theorem. So it's a little more to think about, thinking about thinking. So you, you triggered me on the memory of, of one of Escher's most famous, famous paintings or drawings is a hand drawing itself, right? Yes. Something similar is being thought about in physics right now. Right now we think of the electron as a fundamental point particle, and there is no magnetic equivalent of it, although there's no reason why it can't be in, the, in Maxwell's equations. Yes. And so Dirac came up with a theory in which you had an infinitely long monopole, and it works. And we've now discovered that if we play with the parameters of the strength of the magnetic and, and electric constants, we can make it so that the electron gets more and more large and the monopole gets more and more small until eventually the monopole becomes a, a point particle and the electron becomes infinitely long. What is fundamental is so that we might, we, at the deepest roots of physics, we may already have the hand drawing itself. Like, what, where's the beginning? Just yeah. wanted to add that. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. That's, that's a very good question. You know, again, as we're talking about this stuff, like, I don't know, there's, there's so many things in physics where, where it's difficult to talk about when something begins. You know, I think of like a, a waterfall, like, like exactly when does a waterfall start? You've just got tons and tons of drops of water going over a cliff. You know what I mean? And like, uh, so yeah, we're used to things. We're used to things being built from more primitive uh, things, right? The, we're, yes. we're used to a human being built out of biomolecules, biomolecules being built out of atoms, atoms of protons, quarks. But at, at the, at, at the be deepest levels, there may not be anything fundamental. Yes. And that, that is a really trippy concept in of itself. So, uh, moving on now, there have been a lot of attempts at simulating consciousness. I think uh, robots themselves go f as far back as uh, Da Vinci. I'm sure even before Da Vinci, you know? Probably. Yeah, you know, I think he took basic machinery that you would see in anything, like a, a, you know, like, like a sawmill or, or, you know, a windmill, just like gears. And he, he made uh, drawings of simple robots, things that would look and act like people, but were just made out of gears and cranks and shafts. You know, again, just tools. And in his day, probably mostly wood with some metal. Um, but uh, the, the idea of robots, you know, goes back a very, very long time. Now, if we're talking about artificial intelligence, you know, the ability to mimic the human mind and, the human, and human capabilities in some way, there's a fascinating piece of machinery that was created in the 1770s. Many of you may have heard about it. Uh, it's a machine called the Turk. This machine it was a chess playing machine and it was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, this machine apparently could beat many, many people at chess, including some of the best players. So um, I, I think it was a little box and, and you would sit with it and the player would play it. And through mechanisms inside the box, mm -hmm. it would artificially intelligently play chess against you and it would beat most people. Yeah. So this is fascinating. So this this was... Uh, this convinced a whole lot of people that, that there's some element that we thought was unique to humans that machines can now do. 
Okay, well, it turns out that the Turk is a complete fraud, complete fabrication. It actually worked with, I believe the most appropriate terminology now is a little person. It worked from having a little person inside the machine. Who was who would, yeah. really good at playing chess. <laughs> yes. I'll recall, yeah, the artificial intelligence wasn't artificial at all. Would we call that artificial, artificial intelligence? I don't know. It's, it's you know, twice removed. But yes, it was, it, it, it was a fraud, you know, so... Uh, the motivations here, in case, you know, uh, the motivation in this case was just to fool people and perhaps to make a whole lot of money. So there's always charlatans about. But obviously, that most certainly was not artificial intelligence. That was real intelligence. So one of the key things that we need to think about when we're awed by, you know, sexy TV shows or, or, or something on YouTube on, on, on AI is we need to be careful and we need to distinguish the difference between intelligence and intelligent behavior. Correct. And, and there's a whole, I have a, a, a five little examples here. One is, you know, you see the headline, DeepMind from Google learns to play Atari Breakout, and that's the game where you used to have a paddle controller and go, you would chip away at, 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 at bricks on top. Mm-hmm. And, and it, learned, it learned to do that within four hours, and you're like, wow. Yeah, oh, that's and impressive. Get ready for, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Terminators, right? Skynet, and, yeah. <laughs> It's mathematics is trivial. It's mathematics is a screen is, is pixelated, say mm-hmm. 50 by 50 pixels in those days, and it's being refreshed at, say, 20 hertz, 20 times a second. And so it's a matrix, right? It's, yes. And so it would sit there spastically doing nothing successful. Every once in a while, through statistics, it would hit the puck, if that's what you call it, and it would take a chip off the, 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 the brick wall up there. And the, the, the instruction was, ah, Give that 0.99, that matrix, 0.99, back up to one frame before that of 50 by 50 pixels and give that 0.99 squared and give the previous one 0.99 cubed. Very rapidly, a number less than one raised to powers becomes small. And so go back maybe 20 frames, store that in memory. Keep being spastic. Keep getting lucky with, with, with breaking it. Keep storing that. And now you build up a tremendous lookup library. Okay. And so you start a new game. It goes, ah, I've seen that before in my lookup memory. And sure enough, within a few hours, it is, it's playing the game. And it looks like, wow, it learned. That is, I would argue, intelligent behavior, not intelligence. Yeah, wow. So, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, I've, I've, I've heard it described as, as these, these programs are, are no smarter than your alarm clock or even a They're clock. about as conscious. Yes, well, maybe, exactly. Maybe alarm clocks are conscious and they wake you up wrong eh, yeah. too early. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But, but, I mean, clearly when we think of consciousness, we think of that which separates living things from dead things, you know. And, and part of the problem is we don't really have a definition for consciousness, uh, you know, aside from this thing that we feel that we're, you know, that we take for granted, you know, is a fundamental, character, a fundamental characteristic of an alive person or animal. Um, but, but still, you know, we differentiate our experience of consciousness from the experience of, as I said earlier, an alarm clock or anything else. These programs are simply just algorithms. That's sort of like dominoes. They're literally just following instructions. They, they, they are not deciding things for themselves, you know, at a meaningful level. And there's a few more examples uh, of, of what looks scary and, and, and intelligent behavior and, and intelligent when it's behaving when it's actually behaving intelligently. And one was, uh, it's on YouTube, uh, I think some Yale graduate students pasted three phones on, on a helmet and walked a trail, took, took the video back, you know, re, rejoined the videos into one video, and then would paint arrows. Uh, the more you drifted to the left, it would draw a corrective arrow of, of increasing magnitude. 
And then if the more you drifted to the right, it would draw an arrow of increasing magnitude. And they machine learned that to say, okay, when you see the arrow getting big, actuate the correction to a, a quadcopter to go back to the center, ditto the other direction. And they did that uh, from, from just hiking once, doing the splicing, doing the machine learning, and they let it go. And guess what? The thing could take on an arbitrary trail with you know, dec fairly distinct, distinct borders and fly around like an insect. Like, that's shocking. 1996, uh, the hum you know, humans began to lose to, to, to computers on chess. Gary Kasparov mm -hmm. lost to Deep Blue, which was just basically looking at more options than his. If, if chess is a game with 10 to the 80 moves, humans might be able to look two, three moves ahead. The computer can explore four, five, six moves ahead. If you find the best answer out of 10 to the, say, 50 moves left in the game, if mm -hmm. you find the best 10 million answers, any one of those answers, 10 to the 7, from a set of 10 to the 50, is going to be an awesome answer. And, and of course, there was a, in 2011, you recall, mm -hmm. um, human champions were beat by... Uh, uh, was it, uh, that was called uh, uh, IBM's Watson. Mm -hmm. And IBM's Watson, if you read the papers on it, is just a bunch of kludges on statistics, et cetera. Et that term kludge. For those who are not familiar, that's an, an engineering term for something really thrown together. Um, I think of like I've done engineering projects where you start off with one purpose and then the purpose changes, but you've already started something, so you modify it rather than rebuild, and you're, you repeat that process over and over again, and you've got, well, it's a kludge. It gets the jobs done. It gets the job done, but it, it's... It's not it's ugly. Um, it's not elegant. <laughs> it is not it, the elegant is not the word I'd use to describe it. Absolutely. So recently, uh, sorry, we, we recently we uh, Google beat the human Go champion, and I think Go has two to the two hundred move, ten to the two hundred moves. It's a lot more complicated than chess, apparently. Mm -hmm. Then I think the same company is now dealing with the game of Quake uh, against the best human players. There's a clue there. The more a AIs you add to the game, you begin to get diminishing returns. I think that has something to do with the Helen Keller. We can we can mention that. Lastly, there was a paper that just came out that actually saw re that sees recursion in our brain, mm -hmm. and they're going, maybe that's where consciousness or how consciousness is happening. Yes. Yeah, and one other thing I, I want to mention is, you know, consciousness is very hard to describe. Well, obviously, that's the theme of this episode, right? We have a subconscious. And we talk about doing things subconsciously. We also talk about a term I'll use, I don't know the appropriateness here, but muscle memory. When you do things repeatedly and you're not really thinking about it, but your body just does it. It can be the same drive home where what it, at one time you had to pay close attention to, you no longer do. So when we talk about this phenomena of consciousness, let's just assume that consciousness as we're discussing it requires some energy. When you have pathways in your brain that don't require the same energy there is something left to ponder so it could be just you know um something looking for information you know something like this. i'm not doing a really great job of explaining it but um this does talk about a consciousness and a subconsciousness even though these terms still aren't really well defined but um it's something involving printing memory as well and actually we're going to get to talking about the role of creating memory and printing memory and recalling memory with the conscious experience as well and how that relates to our senses. This is a whole nother uh, topic as well. Uh, and this is also how our senses are different from these artificial um, neural networks, like in the case of Go or in the case of, well, that, well that's the game, 
any of these systems here. It does have an input and it does have instructions, uh, but we, we have multiple senses, you know, sight, sound, uh, how things feel. Uh, we have a sense of balance. We have a sense of taste, you know, all kinds of things. And the way our brain processes it is different. And, you know, I, I can't help but think part of the sensory processing and part of the decision making is what gives rise to consciousness. <laughs> that, that's, that's, those are key insights. Yeah. There's a book called On Intelligence by a, a billionaire. I think he made the Palm Pilot or some, something back in the 90s. Uh, who wrote a book together with a, a, a neurologist on an idea of what consciousness is, and he built a predictor-corrector model based on, on our looking at our brains. And his idea is that we build models, and I'm, I'm going to call them algebraic topological models of how what's connected to what and how they should behave in time, and he's actually, he gave a talk at Sunday National Labs a couple of years ago, and he's working with IBM, his company's Numenta, and they are trying to capitalize on this predictor-corrector, having an intent or understanding intent out there in the universe uh, that it's interacting with. And, and his idea is, is really simple. If we, we talked about the, the drone flying itself, the, that kind of AI could also theoretically drive a car, right? Mm. Uh, and... We don't think of the car being conscious, even if it's driving, you know, from A to B using Google Maps and, and some some machine learning and some sensors. We what you're what you're alluding to is we can drive home, maybe not even aware that we're driving home, and we can be planning our dinner, thinking about the chess, um, the tennis match we have tomorrow, thinking about making sure the kids have what they need. We're doing we're capable of doing all of that intelligence while behaving intelligently, we hope, on the, on the, on the highway. Yeah. And so it, it, it's quite interesting. I think he's got a piece of it, the predictor-corrector of it, mm -hmm. and uh, identifying intent by other folks around us yeah. and having intent. Mm -hmm. And I think what you also just said, this is also very aware of the designers of these artificial intelligence machines. The creators of Watson, IBM's Watson, the, the computer that, um, that beat all of the chess champions, they are very aware that what their machine does is it looks up information. What their machine doesn't do is process sensory information simultaneously and make decisions as we do. It, it could not go home and be a mom of five kids, for instance, uh, prioritizing needs, uh, anticipating things for the future, all while running on, I'll use the uh, analogy given, a tuna fish sandwich. Where did I read that? It was, I think it was in the Atlantic. I don't know. Uh, I'll find it. But basically, our brains are still incredibly complex because we survive and, and we, we thrive. Um, and it's it's uses much less power than, than Watson. Watson is a room full of computers that requires air conditioning and, and power. So we are still absolutely incredible. Um, and uh, I'd say Watson still does not compare to what the human brain does. We just take for granted what we do every day and think of it as not significant because we experience it all the time. So, so uh, they reminded me something that in, in, in Jeff Hawking's book on intelligence is something called cicadic movement. Our eyes are constantly twitching about, and we're not aware of it. And his idea is that that is the predictor-corrector. And say we come home, it's been a busy day, we grab the wrong key from amongst our keys to open the door, and it's the wrong key. You had a, you had a predictor-corrector, you thought, you thought, I'm going to stick it in, open the door, and, and proceed. And suddenly your model is broken, and there's a, a quick 
you know, you, it rises to consciousness. Oh, oh, you know, I have the wrong key. And you begin, you know, falling back into an, another predictor-corrector cycle with hopefully the correct key. Mm-hmm. And I, I think those are, are insights that machines don't have at the moment. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about, about what artificial intelligence is and what it isn't. I think we should go back and talk about the significance of Hofstadter's ideas in his book, Godel Escher-Bach. Uh, I know you read the entire book. I years have read ago. Yeah. parts of it, and I've also read parts of I Am a Strange Loop, the follow-up. What would you say is the main crux of Godel Escherbach? My motivation at the time, as I was interested in mathematical foundations, which we'll get into later, is could his book help me understand Godel's incompleteness theorem? And, and it did in the sense that it gave me the, the example I keep using about a computer being a logical machine that's operating on ones and zeros and arithmetic, and it gets stuck in an infinite loop potentially. Um, it, it's it's refreshing to to see his thoughts on Escher and recursion, his thoughts on Gödel and recursion, and he it, the whole book is just this poetry of recursion and recursion and recursion, and the idea that that is the key to consciousness, or if not the key, a key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think he also talks a lot about how it's possible that something can create and use symbols and how symbols can be created out of things that are meaningless, but then become meaningful based on the context and the usage of the entity that's using them, if, if there's a better way to uh, put it. Oh, that, that's key. It's a phenomenal read. It is a phenomenal read. And again, it's a big book, but uh, this is recommended reading for anybody. And if, if you don't have time, then I definitely would read you know, summaries of it, but I think it's a must read for anybody who wants to discuss these kind of ideas. There's a, another fun book that he, he uh, dealing again with consciousness, but this time with language, you mm-hmm. know, he was thinking about oh, how much intelligence you have to have to successfully translate between uh, two target languages, between English and Spanish yes. or two pairs of languages. So in, in, in this other book that I, that it's called Le Tombo de Maro, and it literally means two things. The Beautiful Sound of Marot, a poet from uh, 1537, 1500s, or The Tomb of Marot. And so he's playing off on that. I mean, how do you translate that? How would a machine recognize Le Tombo de Marot? Which one are you talking about? And so, so that's how he begins. And um, in a research article dating back to 1994, they get into the differences in languages and they get into uh, Italian opera, and he gets into a specific opera that uh, talks about the, the singers singing about the, the beauty of a woman's nipple. And in German, that would be a breast wart, a breast wart. So he goes, he goes like this in this research article, un capello di una donna versus eine brustwurze, eine Frau, a woman's breast wart. <laughs> and he, he, the, the book... Le Tombo de Marot, he takes a, a, a small poem from Marot uh, to his, I, I believe, I think she was a niece, but he calls her a, uh, a damsel in distress. And he, it's in French, it's very short. And, and then his idea was, give this to uh, someone who speaks Punjabi, and then pass and have that person translate. Have, have that person then pass it on to someone who speaks Swahili, and pass it on to a, a Japanese uh, person, and an Icelandic person, and back to English. So, so we're going to try that experiment. Yeah, so you're going to take the, the original poem. I'm sorry, is this the poem about yes. a woman's nipple? Or, sorry. <laughs> no, this is, 
a, okay. a young lady who's sick and he's telling her to get better. Oh, okay. 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 Very good. I understand. Okay. So you took the original one and then yes. you went to Google Translate. Is that right? Right. So okay. in French, very quickly, it's a une demoiselle malade. And it goes, ma mignon, je vous donne le bonjour, le séjour, c'est prison, guérison, recouvrez, puis ouvrez votre porte et qu'en sorte, vitement, car clairement, le vomande, va fuyant de ta bouche qui se couche en danger pour manger confiture, si tu dures trop malade, colophade, tu prendras et perdras le bon point, Dieu te doit, santé bonne, ma mignonne. I had to restrain myself from beatboxing while you did that. <clears throat> Sorry. Correct. <laughs> so now it's gone French, Punjabi, Swahili, Japanese, Icelandic, English. Okay. Now I'm going to do, do the English version after it's been translated and retranslated. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, for domicile patients, right? <laughs> That's what it says. My love. I'll give it to you. <laughs> News. <laughs> Car. This is a prison. Equality. Cover. Then open it your door and we're going out for a short time because it's claimant wait went from the mouth who sleeps in danger eat james if you are the last very sick light color you take it and it gets lost wait god takes care of you health my love <laughs> crudely it does preserve the poem it does not preserve the rhyme or rhythm and uh, it gets a lot of things pretty wrong. And Douglas Hofstetter's point was it's because it's not intelligent at, <laughs> at the level of us. It's not humanly intelligent. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, to go from uh, French to English, it's not so bad. Yeah. And, you know, again, part of that is context. Like, gosh, you know, I, I've often wondered, you know, like if, if you try to explain a, a funny joke in another language or another culture, it might not be funny at all because it's just the, the culture that it, in which you were raised in. And on that same note, I've often wondered if it is possible for something else to be conscious. Like, let's just say, I don't know, a moss somewhere. And I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm deliberately choosing an, an example that seems ridiculous. We're like, well, a moss, that's just like gunk. You know, it just grows here. You know, if a moss were conscious <laughs> and somehow we wouldn't be able to tell. You know what I mean? Like, like it, it's, it's everything that we expect of consciousness. We, we are not equipped to, to have the sensory information to tell if something else is conscious, you know, and then I've thought about, you know, how about my next big sci-fi book? I'll, I'll talk about maybe not, not, not only Google, but like, you know, MySpace, you know, it's just been sitting there abandoned, but you still have these algorithms and these bots that are doing things. What if it was possible that you had a digital consciousness arise from just, you know, the, the, the energy that goes into, uh, um, the internet and, and the archives of the internet and old information. It's sort of like this primordial ooze uh, where, you know, with the right impulse, you could have life spring from it in a very rudimentary form. That is work that I'm doing. I look at Wikipedia and it can be presented in something called Wiki Galaxy. And it yeah. has all the hairs that connect Isaac Newton to calculus to the bubonic plague and not to some arbitrary rock star's background. Yes. It actually has already captured a lot of our consciousness. Now, it's, it's not fair to the audience to, 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 to we read it in, after all those translations, so I just found it in English. Okay, okay, okay. Well, we'll do the English. Oh, and also, but I, 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 did, I did, 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 sorry. <laughs> that was cute, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, so I do have a stutter as well, and I've often wondered about the physiology behind a stutter. What I want to, I'd like to critique what I just said as well. 
you know, although Douglas Hofstadter talks about consciousness and it has to have something to do with self-reference um, and recursion, even if you are able to say that or make that connection, uh, so what? In other words, is it possible to even start to write a program or build a machine that would have that characteristic? How? How would you even do that? And that is not really addressed so much. I, 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 well, I, I don't have the literature in front of me to talk about how deeply that's addressed or if you were to attempt it why would it work or why would it not work so people are attempting that Mm -hmm. they are looking at slices of our brain very closely and seeing the statistical distribution of neurons and dendrites and then going back and replicating that in software and or in hardware okay so we might actually create a silicon brain that looks like ours wow will it behave like ours that's still an open be self-aware these are ethical questions it is an ethical problem so we're gonna we're gonna do the the poem in English, the the one to one, the the simpler translation, and then before we end, we're going to talk about a really exciting tweet that I read uh, and a discussion uh, about Buddhism itself, or I shouldn't say Buddhism itself, uh, a practice in Buddhism and a uh, a um, a Reddit post where where somebody talks about um, this this state of awareness where your mind is not making memories and what that means for consciousness. Uh, We'll get to that in a bit, but first let's talk about that uh, English translation. Okay, so here's from Douglas Hofstadter himself, and he wrote, he did many translations. It's called, it's my sweet dear. My sweet dear, I send cheer, all the best, your forced rest is like jail, so don't ail very long, just get strong, go outside, take a ride, do it quick, stay not sick, ban your ache for my sake, buttered bread while in bed, makes a mess, so unless you would choose that bad news, I suggest that you'd best soon arise, so your eyes will not glaze, Douglas prays, health be near, my sweet dear. Oh, that's not bad. That's not, no, that, that was translated Google or that, by? No, that's by Douglas himself. Okay. That's Hofstadter okay. to, from, from the original. Okay, not bad, not bad. You know, I, it I captures still... the, the tempo, it, yes. it captures the poetry and, and the meaning. Okay, yeah, I like it, I like it. Okay, cool, cool, that makes sense. So I guess that, if we did a side-by-side with the machine learning translation, we can see the uh, clumsiness of it. It's not no so bad if you machines. just go from one pair to the next. Yeah. If you go from French to English, it's not too bad. Okay. But we went through so many intermediate languages. Yeah. All right. So I know this episode has been a longer one, but a fascinating one. Before we go on, I want to share with you a tweet that I read. There is a machine learning researcher by the name of uh, Elisier Yudkowsky. He is uh, not only a machine learning researcher, but he's also the author of my all-time favorite fan fiction version of Harry Potter. He wrote Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. This became um, part of a a culture that developed about, oh, more than 10 years now. I don't want to put a date on it. Within the last 20 years, um, called the Less Wrong Community. You can find them online. It's a community dedicated to making our understanding ever and ever more accurate and being more and more aware of our biases. Uh, Really interesting community. The, the book, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, is uh, a universe where if Harry Potter were raised by a um, two, two brilliant um, college 
professors. I think one of them was a chemistry teacher and one of them was a math teacher. And they, they teach him methods of critical thinking. Then when he goes off to Hogwarts, he uses his critical thinking to figure out how all the systems around him work. Although because it's, you know, fan fiction and fantasy, you, there's still an allowance for magic. But he does talk about weighing things and measuring things. And if I do this, how will that change things? And he messes with people. Of course, in this version, Harry Potter is a Ravenclaw. Perhaps we will talk more about that book later. But I'm more interested right now in a question posted by the author, uh, Elysia Yudkowsky. On June 29th, he sent out a tweet that said, So have you considered that maybe the real reason you can't understand consciousness is that anybody who does understand consciousness ceases to have qualia once they understand how the process works. I'm sorry, once they see how the process works. So anthropically, you find yourself mysteriously not understanding. Kind of a strange question. Again, it gets to this, this idea of do, does being conscious necessitate not understanding it in, in, in some sense. Now, I'm curious what you think about that, but I want to read the answers to his questions. Uh, did you have uh, some input on that? No, no. We, this is something okay. we discussed, and, I, and, I, don't, and I, I can have my answers after. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the answers that I thought was was especially intriguing was from a user by the name of Curious Irrationalist. Uh, this user um, talked about the role of memory and memory and consciousness itself appar- apparently ceasing during certain practices in meditation. Um, this user, Curious Irrationalist, also posted a link to a Reddit article um, that is, uh, it discusses a lot of Buddhism. I'm going to read it out loud. I, I sometimes don't read things uh, that are religious just because I want to make sure there's no misunderstandings. I will make an exception here with the intention on um, discussing what, what happens with memories here. Okay, so from the Reddit thread, according to Buddhist insight traditions, a cycle of the stages of, of the progress of insight culminates in a cessation event, a direct encounter with Nirvana in a book called The Mind Illuminated. The author Kolodasa offers a modern description of such events, of such an event. A cessation event is where unconscious subminds. You know what? I'm going to read this really slow because I want you guys all to consider this. A cessation event is where unconscious subminds remain tuned in and receptive to the contents of consciousness, while at the same time, none of them project any content into consciousness. Then, consciousness ceases completely. During that period, at the level of consciousness, there is a complete cessation of mental fabrication of any kind of the illusory mind-generated world that otherwise dominates, dominates every conscious moment. This, of course, also entails a complete cessation of craving, intention, and suffering. The only information that tuned-in subminds receive during this event is, in fact, or is the fact of a total absence. He goes on to write, the subminds are receptive, but there's nothing to receive. And I don't know if by subminds he's referring to our senses or what he could possibly mean. That part is not clear. It's still a very intriguing read. Moving on, can can a cessation event be consciously recalled afterward? It depends on the nature of the shared intention before the cessation occurred. If the intention of all of all the tuned-in subminds was to observe objects of consciousness, as with popular uh, practices, 
all the all that is sub, subsequently recalled is an absence, a gap. He goes on. He, he, the writer goes on and on to talk about this this time of of not printing any memories or projecting any information into our consciousness and therefore having no recollection, no true recollection of it. Any recollection that one would have of this state would be made up after the state. It's fascinating because basically it talks about consciousness being uh, projected as well as illusory. Uh, illusory. No, no, I... I, I, I... I remember we started this conversation through smartphones, through... Google Hangouts, actually. Through Google Hangouts, and I was in a car wash and just texting back and forth. <laughs> and my immediate gut instinct is to fall back to Richard Feynman, who was very practical, and he did not like philosophy. And I'm sorry I'm in that camp. It's okay. And, and, and I don't think that when we... I know that when I know that we solve problems when we're asleep. I know that our brain continues to work. If I put you in a sensory deprivation chamber and I got a free ride in one of those things a few years ago, you continue to think. You are the memories that you are. You are the near-term projections that you're thinking about. So it, it, it's it's beautiful in the sense of of thinking about. But I, I fall back to the predictor-corrector method of the idea that we're we're building models now. If you stay in a in an isolation chamber forever and ever you might go insane. And, and, and that goes back to uh, a discussion from the last episode. In the second and third books, I do strong science fiction. How do I create an artificial intelligence? Now, as a meta-level thing, as, as I spent 14 years writing, I first wrote the thoughts, just mm -hmm. a bunch of brains speaking to each other. Then I began to instantiate the universe, and then I had to learn about men's clothes in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, did a women, and, and learn how to become a writer and, and flesh it out. And the whole idea was I was watching myself build it, and I was wondering, is this a path towards building a, an AI? And, and it's, it's given me ideas we'll discuss later on topological mm -hmm. chatbots and predictor-corrector methods. Yeah, awesome. So we'll have a lot more to say on this later. This wraps up today's episode. I also want to say it does us a huge favor if you like and subscribe. And also please share this podcast with your friends. Lastly, I, w I would like to plug our Patreon. We are our, my biggest goal here. I should say our biggest goal, right? You know? I want to employ local creatives. I want to get creatives who can help us make posters and cool graphics that teach about the concepts we're talking about. Uh, uh, my old podcast has a wonderful poster on um, Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity and the mathematics behind it. That poster is wonderful. Uh, I'll even have that here as well. Sophia created it from scratch. It looks beautiful. I want to do more of those things. I, I, I want to have, um, you know, posters that, that, that teach about recursion or, or computer science or, you know, or that pose great questions. Not only posters, I mean short little cartoons and videos as well. Essentially, I want to just uh, employ a bunch of artists who can help make some great productions for some of the questions that we're talking about. So please go on Patreon. We have a $5 tier. I'm going to add a $1 tier too because uh, you know, every little bit helps. So if you like what we do, you know, uh, please consider being a patron or being a patron. We would certainly appreciate it. And I think that's all we have for now. I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you.